You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, special education teacher at the Rochester, New Hampshire Middle School and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is May 14th, 2023, and this is episode 225 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we're going to listen to part one of a three-part interview with Barry Porter, a former lighthouse keeper in Newfoundland, Canada, who has written a new book. I want to wish everybody a happy Mother's Day, and of course, happy Mother's Day to you too, Michelle. How's your spring going? Well, it's going pretty well, Jeremy. We finally have some nice weather now. It's busy. School is very, very busy right now, but it's going well. And I'm glad that the weather is nice now, finally. So Yeah, yeah, we, we had, had a, a stretch of rain. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's New England for you in the spring. It's It can be uh, rainy and cold or suddenly 90 degrees. And right. last couple of days are actually, what was it, 80 or so. It was pretty warm. Yeah, it was beautiful. Very nice, yeah. Regular listeners uh, know that both you and I are very involved with our local lighthouse here in the New Hampshire seacoast, Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. We've talked about it on the podcast before, so I don't want to get too deeply into it, but we're still waiting to know when a new walkway uh, that leads out to Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. There, there was an 80-foot walkway. It was washed away in a storm. We're waiting to know when that'll be completed before we can actually start scheduling our tours there for this season. Yeah, hopefully it's done sooner rather than later, but we can't rush things i guess it's it will happen when it's time so yes you're right it's kind of out of our hands the coast guard is involved in this so uh it hopefully is going to happen soon but we do want to mention that we have three lighthouse cruises scheduled out of rye new hampshire which is close to portsmouth here Uh, we have two sunset cruises that will go near two lighthouses on each of the cruises on june 16th and 23rd And we have a daytime cruise that will go near five lighthouses. We call it our annual five lighthouse cruise on Saturday, September 23rd. All the info about those cruises is on our website at PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. Again, PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. I'll be in all three of those cruises. I hope you will be too, but I know that depends on what happens with the tours because you can't be in two places at once, right? Right, exactly. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. And I'm hoping to get on at least one of them, so... Yeah, uh, the sunset cruises are always nice, so I hope maybe we'll see some of our listeners on board. So let's move along here and tell everyone about today's guest, Barry Porter. Sure, Jeremy. Barry Porter worked as a lighthouse keeper on the northeast coast of Newfoundland with the Canadian Coast Guard for 23 years. Born in the small farming community of Porterville, Barry attended a one-room school with no electricity or plumbing with 10 students from kindergarten to grade 5. Later, he attended a vocational school in Lewisport. Over the years, Barry has worked in several professions as a welder, a photographer, a lighthouse keeper, and later as the curator and manager of the By the Bay Museum in Lewisport. His lighthouse adventures began at Surgeon's Cove Head Light Station on Exploits Island. He also worked at the historic Long Point Lighthouse on Twillingate Island and Bacaleo Island Lighthouse on an island near Twillingate. He was the last keeper to live in the old keeper's dwelling at Long Point while he was working there in the 1980s. Barry's new book, Adventures of a Lightkeeper, was published in 2022 by Flanker Press. The book describes the isolation, adventure, and beauty of these places, as well as the history of the lighthouses and their keepers. 
One chapter is devoted to Barry's efforts to rehabilitate a paralyzed beagle that lived with him for many years. Barry is an avid outdoorsman and a proud father of two children. He lives in beautiful downtown Porterville, Newfoundland with his wife, Alice, and his present beagle, Lucy. I really enjoyed Barry's book. It was a great experience getting to talk with him. This interview ran pretty long, but I enjoyed every minute of it. Because it ran rather long, I've divided it into three podcast episodes. We'll hear part one now, parts uh, two and three over the next two episodes. So let's listen to part one of my conversation with Barry Porter now. Speaking today with Barry Porter, who is a former lighthouse keeper in Newfoundland, Canada. And Barry is the author of the recently published book, Adventures of a Lightkeeper, a great new book that I recommend very highly. Thank you very much for joining me today, Barry. Good day, Jeremy. Nice to talk to you. It's pronounced Newfoundland, right? Newfoundland. Uh, I, I always tell people, you say, understand, understand Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Yeah, I, for a lot of people around here tend to say New, Newfoundland, I think, but New, yes. Newfoundland, that's what I thought. So, Barry, let me ask you starting out here. We're going to, I want to get into some specific stories about the lighthouses where you're stationed and everything. But what made you decide to write a book about your experience as a lighthouse keeper? Uh, good question. I've had it kicking around in the back of my head for 10, 12 years, maybe. I left the Coast Guard in 2006. When COVID hit, yeah, I had extra time on my hands and, uh, I just thought my unique career should be should be told about. Uh, you know, I, I'm a bit of a reader. I read books on fishing captains, soldiers, loggers, uh, you name it, politicians. But uh, around these parts, there's very few books on the actual life and life spent on these remote islands. So uh, with the shutdown, with COVID and lockdown, I started dabbling with it and. Uh, start putting it on paper and I start posting a few pictures on Facebook and the reaction I used to get uh, was amazing. Like I just took it for granted that everybody went to, went to, uh, to work, I guess, sort of in a 18 foot speedboat dodging <laughs> icebergs. And uh, the more I thought about it, uh, the more I figured it was uh, a story to be told there. And uh, I started, uh, I started, it uh, took me about a year and a half, but once I started putting it on paper, it really came out of me. easy. It, it just, Mm -hmm. Well, you did a great job with it. And I was just thinking, you know, there's been books on uh, Lighthouse Keepers experiences in other parts of Canada and in the U.S. and some other countries, but I don't know of any other book about uh, the memoirs of a lighthouse keeper in Newfoundland. I could be wrong about that, but I, I think you may be the first. Yeah, there's not many around. Here you. Yeah. When I was reading the book, I was thinking uh, there's so much detail in here. It made me wonder if then the years while you were a lighthouse keeper, if you kept a journal, if you made a lot of notes about your experiences, or do you just have a great memory? <laughs> well, I don't know about the memory, but uh, I kept a journal and I still do to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a, a young minister visit me when I was at Long Point Twongi early into my career. And he stayed at the lighthouse with me for a couple of days. Nice guy. And somewhere along the, the road, he, he said, Barry, uh, you should keep a journal. And it, I thought about it, and I started. And it's, it's a good thing I did because, uh, you know, like I said, I still keep it to this day. But when I started my, my book, I could go back and pinpoint the exact day that a certain event happened. If, you know, the ship was some shipping incident or, or supply ship or you know, a bad storm, you know, I, I was able to go right back to the exact uh, 
weekday and and uh, make it sound more legit than just a general guess at it. Yeah. My good friend Chris Mills uh, lives in Nova Scotia, but actually served as a lighthouse keeper on both coasts of Canada. Wrote a book about his experiences. He did the same thing. He kept a journal. And I think in both cases, it really puts the reader right in the middle of it because the the uh, description is so vivid and everything, uh, so much detail. So before you became a lighthouse keeper, you had some experience as a welder, right? Uh, you tell a story in the book about how you applied for a welding job on an oil rig and something happened, something uh, disastrous actually happened that led to your uh, career as a lighthouse keeper. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I was a welder for uh, over five years. Uh, I worked in a couple of mines at Western Canada in uh, Man- northern Manitoba and uh, in the, the oil industry in Alberta. And I moved back home and worked at a local welding shop here. But uh, at the same time, the, the offshore oil industry was really taking off in this land. And they had this new uh, drilling rig, the Ocean Range, uh, was owned by Holy Coal out of New Orleans. And they were staffing the, the rig. So uh, they had a big uh, push for uh, for uh, workers uh, from a welder to a cook to a deckhand. They're, they're fitting at the rig. And I said, you know, they were offering big money. So uh, me and two of my buddies drove into St. John's, a four-hour drive. We went in and done the interview and at the hotel window and there was hundreds of men around uh, applying for these odd different jobs and I was lucky enough they uh, they picked me I uh, got through the first uh, interview session and then I was required to go to uh, the hospital and have a really uh, thorough inter- uh, medical and I passed that as well so I was on the waiting list to be a welder actor and uh, so a bunch of men got jobs there no electricians and Plate fitters and, and riggers, and I was just waiting and waiting for the phone call for uh, for a job out there. And uh, February the fifteenth, uh, nineteen eighty two, there was a terrible, terrible storm offshore, and the Ocean Ranger went down with uh, taking eighty four men with it, and that spooked me and said, uh, I don't want to work offshore. And I uh, and I was getting tired of the welding. It was a dirty job, good money, but it's mm-hmm. not a really clean profession. And um, I decided to switch gears and and uh, look elsewhere. And I, I decided I ended up getting an interview with the Coast Guard and uh, became my career, started my career as a uh, lighthouse keeper with the Canadian Coast Guard. Was that something you had ever thought about before? No, wasn't on me. Wasn't on my radar one bit. Uh, yeah. My dad's a farmer. I could have went farming, but that was uh, a lot of work, twenty four hours a day, and. Um, uh, a friend of mine had he'd been working at the, the Coast Guard for a year or two before me, and uh, he enjoyed it. And uh, I just, you know, out of out of nowhere, I just put in an application board and uh, and uh, booked a job there. Mm-hmm. And so then, in 1983, your first assignment uh, was as a relief lightkeeper at Surgeon's Cove Head Lighthouse, right? Yes. And on the exploits islands, do I have that right? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Can you describe a bit about that location and what the place was like? That was yeah, my very first shift was September '83 on uh, Surgeon's which is on Exploits Island. Exploits Island is a uh, pretty little island. Actually, it's two islands in one. It's approximately four miles wide by two two miles long, 
and uh, sits on uh, the edge of the Atlantic. Uh, the Bay of Exploits is south of that. But it's a major shipping route. And uh, so I got positioned there for uh, for a shift. That lighthouse was built in 19, 1911. And uh, it's a month on, 32-day on shift and 32-day off shift. So uh, you had this 20 miles at the bay. So I had to... Uh, you know, jump aboard my speedboat, my father's speedboat, and and go out into the Atlantic to the island. And uh, it's a really nice, really nice light station. It's a big, big dwelling. It was built in uh, around around 1960, I think, and it was called a double family dwelling. Back in 1960, two families actually lived there. Uh, one family on one side, one family on on the opposite side. So it was two kitchens, two bathrooms four or five uh, bedrooms on each side and a full basement. But now in the eighties, it was uh, just down to light keepers. So it was me and another keeper there. And uh, you had the house just off from the house to the north of the house was the, the main light tower. That was a cast iron structure. Uh, just to the right of that was uh, the engine room. And that contained the three Lester diesels that were, uh, that generated power. For, for the lights and uh, the fog orange furnace and, and the whole system, right? So it was a big station. You had a little drop pad right next to the to the engine room. So if a, if a mortar had to be uh, replaced, a diesel mortar had to be replaced, the helicopter could come right, right nearby and just drop the mortar or, or lift one off. And back behind the house was a much larger light uh, helipad. I don't know what the measurements of that would have been, 50 by 50 maybe. And uh, that was the main pad for the for the choppers, and we had some. Uh, we kept a dozen drums of jet fuel there as well. So it was it was a big dwelling, and just down down below that, towards the the gulch, was where we would lift and and uh, lift up our supplies, our monthly supplies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a landing. You were probably two hundred feet above le- uh, sea level there, but it was a big spire and boom. They were all anchored down with galvanized cables. And it was a diesel winch, so you would swing your uh, your boom out over this cliff, drop a knit down 200 feet, and open prey your buddies down down in the bottom in a speedboat with a knit full of supplies. So you you click on your uh, your knit, winch that up, and pull pull back in the boom, and uh, that's how you would uh, get your supplies. So mm-hmm. we've done that for years and years. Later, the chopper was would be around for in the winter time, but uh, in the spring, summer, fall, you'd uh, you'd transfer your supplies in this uh, this gulch down and under, uh, just down below the lighthouse. So yeah. it was a you know it was a nice nice laid out, well kept lighthouse station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll get more into getting on and off some of these these places as we we talk today. I know it was a an, it could be an adventure. And, yeah, uh, yeah. A, a lot of them, but um. Typically, tell me uh, how many men were assigned to a station like that, and how long in a stretch were you on there? Well, four lightkeepers were assigned to uh, to that lighthouse, uh, so you would have two working per shift. Uh, I would go out for thirty two days, me and a and a coworker. After after th- th- thirty two days, we'd come ashore, and the other guys would go out. So uh, it was four men rotating on on the shift for thirty two days at a time. Uh, a few years later, on, on the end of my career, the Coast Guard uh, shortened the ship to 28 days. 
uh, not much difference, but um, you're gone for quite a while, right? When you're when you're gone, right? And this this lighthouse was 20 miles out, out the bay in the into the Atlantic, so you're a good ways from home. Let's let's get back to to landing at these places again for for a moment. Uh, did you have any close calls getting to that station? Anything memorable? Yeah, uh, the two. I worked on three island stations. Uh, two of them, uh, you know, was I had some uh, some life risking uh, changeovers. Uh, the worst one probably on uh, ever happened was out on Surgeon's COVID in the nineties. We uh, we'd been out working shift for thirty two days, and we were due to get off. Uh, it was December twenty first actually. And the helicopter, that time of year, we always changed by helicopter, a Canadian Coast Guard helicopter from St. John's. But they would have to fly, you know, uh, 200 miles to get there. So if you had bad weather in St. John's, there was no chopper available. And we'd, uh, it was stormy weather, it was terrible conditions. We were already a day or two over, over our, our uh, changeover date. And we were getting anxious to get off, and uh, two light keepers coming on for the Christmas shift was anxious to get out there and get it started. And uh, we waited and waited several days, and no chopper flying. And uh, finally, uh, and it was a storm coming. Uh, it was bad at the time, but it was a storm forecast called for several days of even uh, more higher winds and big seas. So uh, the boys made the call to our reliable uh a boat that we used to hire and uh, Ford Ryder came out in this 20 foot speedboat with the two light keepers and all their uh, all their supplies for that month and uh, we done a changeover but uh, it was really high risk uh, we had mountains of sea the sea in this little cove was like a flush box in the summertime you can get right in and, and drop your winch with the net and winch up but if conditions are bad uh, you throw your supplies onto the side of the cliff where there's a light keeper hanging on for dear life. And he would throw the boxes back up. And uh, that day, they came out by, by about two o'clock in the afternoon because we waited for a chopper, but it didn't happen. And we uh, we were there, took us about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, seas, the, the speedboat would, would uh, fall and lift anywhere between 15 to 20, 25 feet. And just wipe foam around. Ford was a really capable operator, boat operator, and uh, he came into the cove or to the heads of the cove, and he, he he dropped his anchor, which I've never ever seen him do before, just for some more control. And he wait and wait and wait, and uh, when you see the slightest little break in the in the swell or the sea, he he dart into the cliff, throw one box out, back off again wait and wait five minutes ten minutes throw another box and finally we got all the boxes thrown ashore and then we had to get two bodies out of the boat and two bodies in the boat and we we done this little dance in the cold for like i said about 45 minutes almost an hour to get two guys two light keepers off and and then me and my co-worker hearts had to jump into the boat and the trick is you got to uh when the boat is in this sea in, in such movement, you got to when the boat is at the very peak at its at, at the swell. That's when you got to jump. Yep. Uh, if it's starting to fall, you're going to miss. It. And we we uh, we put an extra effort into it because it was Christmas coming on. But 
we broke every law in the book, every safety rule. And, uh, you know, but we got home for Christmas and the two guys got got to work. But it was uh, it was a really scary uh, changeover. And looking back at it, the, you know, it's, it spooks me to this day, really. Yeah. I've had some adventures getting on some offshore lighthouses, but nothing quite that hair-raising, I think. So, in, in, in the winter, like the hoist, the rocks were hoisty and slippery. We had some yeah. down, and it was just a bad, a bad. You know, we we're lucky we done it, and uh, you know, we we're used to it, I guess. But it was it was pretty risky. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking of something. I just want to say to the our listeners that I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground today with these questions. Uh, you know, but uh, we're not uh, getting into anywhere near all the stories in your book. So I don't want people listening to think, oh, I, I heard this interview. I don't need to read the book now. <laughs> so uh, if you're if you're hearing this interview, I recommend very, very highly that you also read the book because there's there's so much more detail in there that we can get to today. So I just want to get that in. OK, let me ask you about uh, eating and cooking at these these places. How did that work? Did you take turns cooking? Yes. When I was on Bacalao, that was uh, another lighthouse that I worked on. We we cooked every dinner there. Uh, the light keeper on ship was responsible for cooking. So he would cook, say, today's dinner. And the next day, the other keeper would cook. So uh, on Surgeon's COVID, there we uh, we cooked supper instead of the dinner. So the, guy, the light keeper on ship would cook. Uh, supper and the next day the other guy would, would cook and so when you go out you, you plan your, your meal plan before you go out uh, you had to take out your supplies because you couldn't go drop down to the local grocery store uh, you'd had to take out you knew for sure you had to cook 16 suppers so you take your groceries your frozen foods all your supplies and put it in boxes uh, tie it up and uh, and you'd always Take a couple extra in case you got stuck there a few extra days. Once you got there, uh, done a few shifts, you always had a few extra meals in the kitty. Uh, all the lighthouses had big deep freezes in the basement. So everybody always, you know, try to keep stockpiling a little extra. But uh, you take turns cooking every second day, basically, is what you do. And and you you look after your own breakfast and your own other meal. But uh, you, the guy on shift cooked the main meal every day. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just throwing a microwave dinner in the microwave for three minutes. No, no. You uh, when you're away from loved ones and you're out there isolated, you want to uh, you want good food. So we we really put pride into our cooking and and cooked up good meals, good hearty meals. Uh, you know, chicken, fish, steak, what, whatever, roasts. You know, we we always ate well. And uh, but I've heard stories, guys, rookies coming out with thirty two frozen meals and and just terrible terrible yeah. meals right but uh you know i was lucky the guys i worked with we all supported each other and and you had a you had a good full belly when you uh went when you went to bed anyhow good yeah uh you made me think of I, th- I think i remember hearing about uh lighthouse keepers somewhere pretty much living on uh, peanut butter sandwiches yeah. or spam sandwiches that was a common yeah, thing probably I yeah <laughs> uh i know one guy i hate was uh it was either turkey legs or turkey necks. You would take yeah. out a full month supply. That was the only meal he cooked every day. <laughs> Not yeah. for me. 
<laughs> right. No, no, not for me either. So you have a lot of your own photos in the book uh, and you're an excellent photographer and you've been nice enough to, to email me some photos lately. You did a lot of photography during your years as a lightkeeper and also, uh, I believe, uh, videography, taking video as well. Was the, all that a hobby for you before you became a lightkeeper? Yes, I was always into uh, taking pictures. I bought my first Nikon in uh, 1976, my first 35 millimeter. So I always took pictures, um, and that helped me with writing the book. Not only did I have a journal, but I had pictures of everything I I done. And once I got working on the lighthouse, there was just more opportunity to take more pictures, and uh, I, I carried my camera everywhere. So uh, it's, it's in my blood to to do to do the pictures and you know i used to do wedding photos years ago and whatnot and a few magazine pictures here and there but taking pictures is in my blood and still to this day i i got two nikons kicking around somewhere yeah well it's great that you documented this stuff both with your journals and then uh you know writing it in the book but also uh, recording with the photography as well because most light keepers didn't do either of those things so you've done a real, real service by doing this. And I just want to mention also, you and I figured out uh, by email that oh, we're very close in age. I believe you're just a few weeks older than me. Uh, and uh, that's right about the time I got my first Pentax K1000, my first uh, 35 millimeter. Yeah. Nice, I had, nice uh, cameras. I'm, I'm quite familiar with those. Yeah. Very basic manual camera, but they served, I had a couple and they served me well for, for many years. Yeah. So in 1984, you transferred to Long Point Lighthouse at Twillingate. You stayed there for four years. You uh, were a full-time keeper at that point. Uh, it's one of the really, I, I think, one of the iconic lighthouses of Newfoundland. What was life like there? Yes, I went to uh, Twillingate in July, 1984. The position became available and I I applied for it and 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 got it right. Uh, at Long Point Twenty Eight was a land station, so you could drive there and drive home. So on the island stations, it was rotational, thirty-two days on, thirty-two days off. Long Point was seven days a week, year round. So there had to be a eight-hour watch every day, uh, year round at Long Point. So I went there and uh, went there for four weeks originally, and worked from eight to four, and commuted back and forth which was a long commute, but uh, I needed a job. I needed to get uh, more more experience, I, the better. And after my four weeks was up, the whole lightkeeper who I uh, filled in for, Alan Roberts, really nice gentleman, he decided to retire. He had enough years in, and he took uh, retirement. And I stayed there for another four years. So my four weeks worked to uh, four good years on, on Long Point. And that lighthouse is, uh, you know, that's sort of a tourist mecca, uh, Long Point Twillingate. You get bus tours there every day, hundreds and hundreds of tourists crawling around. It's really, uh, it's a really beautiful location. You're looking at, you're 300 feet above sea level. It was built in 1876. And, you know, the view is, is amazing. You're right on top of the ocean. And there's this, it's considered iceberg alley. So you get icebergs this time of the year. For the next few months, few few whales, lots of shipping, and uh, it's, the original house is still there, standing. Uh, it too was a two-family dwelling, and I was there by myself, uh, just me and my my beagle, in a house with had two kitchens, two living rooms, two bathrooms, basically five bedrooms on each side, mm -hmm. uh, with a light tower, um, 
the light tower was attached to the dwelling with the little hallway to take you up up into the tower. Uh, next to that was a long tunnel to uh, keep you out of the elements, out of the wind, that led you down to the engine room and compressor room where the five horn was. So uh, it was a really, you know, beautiful, beautiful uh, location. And uh, but the tourists was was amazing. I, I never experienced anything like it before. Yeah. Uh, luckily, in the summertime, I had a couple, two or three, four students working there during the summer months. But uh, after that, I would talk to, to the tourists and tell them the history and give them a tour of the Lake Tower. And uh, it was a really nice spot. And correct me if I'm wrong, but were you the last person to live in that house, the keeper's house there? Yes. Um, the, the original keepers, Alan Roberts, the guy I replaced, and Igbo Sharp, those those gentlemen and their family, they moved out of the lighthouse in uh, the early 70s and moved into their own houses into the town of Twillingate and Crow Hill. Uh, so the house had been vacant for probably 13, 14 years. Uh, keeper working there, but no one stayed there overnight. And because I had a three-hour commute, hour and a half down, hour and a half back, after I went uh, full-time, uh, I asked the Coast Guard in St. John's, the uh, at the office and they're, uh, you know, like, can I stay at the lighthouse instead of this long commute every day? And after some thought, they they agreed with me that I could stay there uh, the 16 hours that I wasn't working. And if anything happened, I was, you know, I was still a light keeper, but, you know, off ship, I was, I was on call if there was some uh, marine uh, incident or uh, just security for the site, right? So, uh, I was able to live there, and uh, I moved out in, in 88, um, and uh, nobody's ever lived in the dwelling since. So I, so I my claim to fame, I'm the last guy to ever live in that beautiful old lighthouse. Yeah, lucky you. So I think it was at Twillingate there that you met your wife, Alice. Is that right? Yes, that's that came with, uh, yeah, that came shortly after I went there. Uh, she was working there as a pharmacist at the, at the pharmacy in, in Twillingate, and she was from... Uh, a uh, nearby town up from where I grew up. So I knew her and her family and uh, she happened to be working there for a few years and we connected and uh, uh, the rest uh, is history. We fell in love and we're, we're still together to this day. So yeah, it worked out good. And you have two kids, right? Two kids. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll talk about them a, a little later, but uh, this is a pretty broad question, but what were some of the things you did for fun in your free time at, at that light station and the other ones where you were stationed? Well, Twillingate, you know, like I said, you had, you had human beings around you all the time. I wasn't isolated by no means. I had tourists knocking on my doors, you know, every hour of the night wanting a tour or wanting yeah. this or whatever. So, plus I made friends with, with the community, you know, I got involved, I, you know, I basically lived there. So I got involved with the uh, docky there in the winter time. And, uh, there was always something to do, you know, I, and, you know, I'm a time off. I'd go hiking, but I worked, I worked seven days a week. So there was very little time off. I, I got holidays after, after a full year, I finally got three, four weeks holidays, but, uh, you know, I had to do eight hour watch, which was crazy, but, uh, that's what I did for, to keep my job. You had to, uh, had to it was a one man station. So I was responsible for the whole uh, time I was there. So there wasn't a lot of half time, you know, nighttime you'd, uh, like I said, I got involved with hockey and met a lot of good friends. Out on the highlands, now that was total, totally different uh, scenario. There was nobody around. So you had to, uh, I, I basically tried every hobby there was 
in the book from uh, I taught myself how to play guitar poorly. I tried oil paints, sketching, writing poetry, pictures and, and uh, uh, video things. Um, done a lot of hiking, a lot of exploring, wood carving, uh, done carved soapstones. You know, you, you got to keep yourself busy on these islands on your, on your downtime. And especially if it's bad weather, you get uh, stuck indoors with, you know, eye winds and fog and rain. And you got to keep busy at something, right? Or you, uh, or you lose your, uh, your sanity. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like making your own fun, as many people have done at Lighthouses uh, over the centuries. Yep. Yeah. In your book, you write quite a bit about your dog. Uh, your beagle, uh, Gypsy. In fact, I believe there's a chapter devoted to to Gypsy in the book. And I, I know uh, she meant a lot to you over the years. Can you tell our, our listeners a, a bit about Gypsy? Yeah, Gypsy was, uh, she was my beagle. I've had beagles all my life. I, uh, I got uh, Lucy here now. I've had beagles since uh, I was a young boy. And uh, Gypsy was my second beagle. I uh, She was probably three years old, four years old when I went got that position at Long Point Lighthouse. So I went down there and uh, like I said, I moved into the Lighthouse. So that was my home. So it was just me and my dog there. She, so she was with me 24 uh, seven at the Lighthouse. And wherever I went, she went. Um, she lived a good life. She lived to be 14 and a half. She, she worked the four years with me on uh, Long Point Twillingate. And then she'd done several shifts with me out on Bacalao and a few on Surgeon's COVID. So I, I call her the Lighthouse Beagle. But uh, three years into my stay at uh, at Long Point Twillingate, she had a slip disc and a serious accident. My wife and I was away, and my girlfriend at the time were down in the United States on motorcycle. And she had a slip disc and went paralyzed. Um, the veterinarian wanted to, put, wanted to put her down, the local veterinarian. My parents wanted to put her down. And I was too attached to her by then, you know, especially spending all the time weathering it the storms in Twillingate, like in the wintertime, in the fall, it, it gets wild there. And then, you know, she was my companion and I was refusing to, uh, to, to uh, put her down, put her asleep. And the vet said, well, it's a long shot. You can fly her to the Guelph University Hospital in Ontario. And so that's what I, I done. Flew her up there. And by now, too many days had passed after her, her uh, accident they still thought you know the outcome was very very poor and wanted to put her asleep and i said no way you know take, do the surgery and i deal with it because uh, i was in a position where i could look after her she was with me 24 7 so if i had to do physio or or whatever i was willing to do it so uh they done the, the operation in in the in ontario and we were in in going touring through the state, so I sort of speeded up the tour a little bit. But I was in Long Beach, California, actually, when when I got the word that she was paralyzed. So I was on the totally opposite side of the country. She had the surgery, and we visited her in the hospital at uh, Guelph, Ontario. And the poor thing still, her hind quarters was just a piece of rubber. It was sad, right? She had no control over her uh, urine, bowels, and... Uh, Anyhow, it was a pitiful sight, but uh, I was well willing to deal with it. So I, they gave me a few days to get back to Newfoundland. I got back to the lighthouse. I flown her back to Gander, picked her up, and brought her back to the lighthouse. 
And then I had a paralyzed beagle on my hands with a scar about seven inches on her back. So they told me uh, to try physio, try swimming with her. And uh, I was determined to give it a try. And uh, young and foolish, I don't know, but uh, I love my dog. So uh, every day I, I flex her toes, I flex her ankles, her knees, her hips. I do a session like every, I think it would take 10 or 15 minutes, but I would do that four or five times a day. And they said swimming was really good. So this was August, September. So I used to take her into the local ponds and go swimming with her. And, you know, two, two months into it, it was, was nothing happening, right? But I was getting discouraged. She was getting water infections. She had sores on her toes where she was dragging because I, I welded up a cart, being a welder. I made a canine cart where she could drag her own legs, right? But anyhow, I had her at the lighthouse doing all this work. And the, the tourists, is funny. The tourists would come up over the hill looking, you know, at this majestic lighthouse and it be, could be whales out there and they'd be more, more interested in, in my beagle than the, than the landscape. <laughs> it was, you know, mm-hmm. people from all over uh, the country was taking pictures of my dad. Anyhow, I was uh, continuing my, my uh, physio on her and finally one day getting, getting in well into the middle of uh, uh, September, well, the water was getting cold, but, uh, Excuse me. I got a kick. I was swimming with her. She kicked. And that was the first indication that there was something, there was a single leaving, leaving her brain going back to her legs. So that was inspiring. That kept me going. And I kept it up for another seven, eight months. And uh, she lived another seven years after that, seven and a half years after that. She didn't recover 100%. I considered she was front wheel dry. Her, her front legs muscled up, but her hind legs did work. And uh, she got full control of her her, uh, her bladder bowels. I had to watch the timing, but she lived another seven good years and mm-hmm. got to two other lighthouses. And uh, it was quite the, quite the the journey with my beagle. And my wife knows what I went through. And uh, my dear old vet, every time I seen him, he was a boater, so he uh, he respected my job that I had. But if I see him at the marina, like. He'd give me the big nod or salute because he, uh, I'm, I'm probably the only guy that ever attempted this and uh, kept it up, but it, yeah. it worked out good. I guess so. Yeah. It's a great story. And I'm just thinking, uh, you know, in spite of that accident, I think she was a lucky dog and she had a, a good life uh, yeah, for the most part. Good. So I think you're both, both lucky to have each other. So getting back to kind of making your own fun at these places, there's a story you tell in the book about a time at, uh, at, at Long Point where you there was a communications tower, right? A really tall tower. And you had kind of an adventure when you climbed it one time. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I went there at 84 and that was the same time that the Canadian Coast Guard erected a brand new 270 foot communication tower right in the park lot. Uh, so they put a uh, big tower there for the VHF radios and whatnot uh, for the radio, uh, the, the main radio Coast Guard radio station was back in the bay near uh, Loom Bay, but they would bounce the signal from Loom Bay to Long Point and then out over the ocean, uh, giving much more range. And it was all brand new when I went there. Uh, they put it was a, a trailer right at the base of the, the tower with all kinds of high tech radio equipment with, with their own diesel generator and whatnot, all surrounded with a chain link fence. And uh, I had the key for it. So, uh, when they were installing it, uh, the riggers would come out and 
I got to know the boys. They would climb up the towers and put on ice protections and change the lamps and do work on the on the towers. And uh, so they gave me a safety belt. I used to go up with them. Technically, I wasn't allowed to do it, but I was just helping it, helping out my co-workers. And um, from time to time, I would take my uh, safety belt and climb up this tower, 270 feet, with a safety belt. You're enclosed in the triangle inside of the, the tower. Uh, I would take my camera with me. So um, I was being a camera nut. I was trying to catch or capture the best pictures, which I did, at different levels, 200 feet, 270 feet. And I do it in the fog. I do it in sunrise, sunsets. So, you know, I, I done it a few times. But uh, this one time I went up to the very top and something up my safety belt, misfunction. It, it locked up. The brake got stuck. And I'm up in the very top of the tower, 270 feet plus is on, on the parking lot, so, which is almost 300 feet above sea level. So it's quite the view up there. I'm basically 600 feet above sea level and my darn belt is stuck. And uh, I'm trying to figure out now what, what am I going to do here? And I had to keep my calm. A little windy up there too when you're up that high. The only reason I was up there because I had a good safety belt on and I felt comfortable. But I had to take off my comfort uh, belt and fiddle around with the with the brake, get it reworking again. Whatever happened, the spring or something, a misfunction on it. Holding uh, on to my camera at the same time and hanging on for dear, dear life. It's not a place to panic or faint or pass out. And after a, a bit of tweaking, I got the belt to work properly or the brake system. I reattached it. And slowly climbed down, taking a couple more pictures, and that was my very last job as a uh, as a tower climber. <laughs> it, it spooked me. I would think so. It would spook me. You know, I'm not especially afraid of heights, but that would that would really, really, really spook me. The only thing I can think of to compare it is that I've gone up in small helicopters a few times where they take the door off for you so you can take pictures. So you got nothing. You know, you're just yep. uh, you're strapped in, of course, but so it doesn't compare. It's perfectly safe, but boy, that would have would have been scary. So uh, let's ch- just change the subject a bit here. I think people uh, generally know there's a long tradition of seal hunting in Newfoundland. Uh, you mentioned uh, seal hunters a few times in the book. You mentioned helping some of them who are in trouble at times, uh, and maybe you want to say something about that. But uh, is that something you ever tried yourself, seal hunting? I wasn't really a seal hunter. I, I did try it, uh, attempted once. Um, when the seal hunters were on the hoist or out in boats, we kept the high on them and, and interaction with them. Uh, my only time, I went out once uh, on, from Bacalao, and it was a flat, calm day. There was Arctic hoist all scattered throughout the, the, the bay, but it was loose. You could weave it around it in your, uh, in your speedboat. So... Um, it was a nice day. It was in May month. And um, my co-worker, Ralph Early, uh, he'd seal on quite a bit, right? He was a older gentleman, right? Most of the people I worked with were all older than me because I was the new kid on the block for years because automation was <laughs> was a threat over our head. So, uh, I, you know, with very few young light keepers in the system. So um, Ralph was is, is who I worked with for four years on back layout just about four years. Uh, he, he used to go out hunting, right? But I never, ever tried it until this one day I went out, flat, calm day, 
and I met with uh, I got a lend of his shotgun, and it's pretty tricky. You got to be good at it because you've got to operate your boat, maneuver around the the hoist pans, and if you see a, a seal pop his head up in the water, if it's just a black shiny spot you see for a second or two. Uh, you know, it takes quite a bit of skill to do all of it, and I attempted it a couple of times and had no luck whatsoever. So I went back to the lighthouse. And on that layout, you had to you had to manually winch your boat out of the water. Uh, same as surgeons told me, but uh, not quite so tricky. So I just winched my boat up and uh, called it quits. My uh, biggest encounter with the seal hunters, or a, a rescue that I I uh, helped out with, was uh, when I was back on Long Point. Twingate got a really big uh, history of you know, it's a fishing community, so they fish. The hunters in the fall of the year or arc seals in the winter if conditions are right. My biggest memory with the sealing is uh, one time I was at Long Point uh, Lighthouse and uh, the house had been packed in for weeks and weeks, northeast wind. The hardy guys stuck to the rocks and it was like concrete. And the season was right. Uh, there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of arc seals, thousands. Uh, scattered throughout the house. So uh, the Twillingate guys, uh, the hunters, they were really, when conditions are right, they go after the, the get a few seals for the meat and, and uh, the pelts and whatnot. And this day, uh, it was a bright sunny day, the house was packed in and there were seals around. The, the birthing season had just was lined up properly. So uh, there was two, three, four dozen sealers out, scattered out from uh, Long Point Twillingate. And uh, I went up to the light tower, just so you're up 335 feet above sea level when you're in the tower. So you got a good bird's eye view of what activity is happening on the ice or on the water. So I'm, I'm just looking, keeping an eye on what's, you know, get a rough idea how many men is out there uh, trying this brave uh, seal on. And uh, I went back down for lunch, had lunch, and an hour or so later went back, climbed back up to the tower and uh when i did this time it was the slightest slightest change in the in the conditions uh the forecast called for a storm coming so i guess the wind was shifted the tide was shifted and uh, this ice that had been packed in for weeks there was no shipping it was that tight the icebreakers couldn't even operate uh but outside 100 miles offshore you know the pressure eased off something shifted and it was these hairline cracks just starting in the in the seascape that I was looking over. You know, I could see 25 miles visibility. And it was just these hairline cracks starting, and uh, which means it's going to get a lot worse. And uh, the whole light keeper told me that Long Point has this tradition of setting off the foghorn if those conditions uh, occur and there's hunters on the hoist. And I was there four years that time, three years later. It only happened once, but um, I see this this little small short leaves of water. It was like a crack in a windshield just going across. And I scurried down to the tower, ran down the, the tunnel to the Foghorn building, and Long Point at that time still had big hair compressors, had, had the hair on, right? Yeah, I think it was rated for like 10 miles. So I just turned on the thing manually and let her pump up and then she blasted, right? And uh, clear sunny day, no fog, 
As soon as the hunters heard this blast from Lion Point, they knew it was trouble. They dropped everything they were doing and I tell it back to land. They, uh, they, uh, they, they knew the, was something happening and uh, that was a warning. So it was dozens. So I went back up to the light, back up to the tower. Sure enough, they were all hidden back to land and they dropped their, uh, if they had any seal carcasses, they just dropped them there because they knew uh, the ice was uh, opening up and you see the, the leaves of water, which was 10, 20 feet, was now a hundred, a quarter mile. And it spread to a half mile and uh, they all got back safely. Like was, they were lucky. It could, could have been lost, right? Especially with a storm coming. And uh, I went down, they, they left from three communities, uh, Crove Inn, Wild Cove and Sleepy Cove, which is a small park. And I went down uh, a couple hours later and talked to uh, two or three men that just got in because it took them an hour or two to get back in or more. And uh, talking to one uh, one group of hunters, and they you know they thanked me for the for the setting up the, the foghorn because they said they came across this lead of water. It was only twenty feet wide, but it might have been a mile long. And they said uh, they were equipped, luckily, with a jigger, which is a hook and string, and they got on a little raft, a little hoist raft, threw the jigger across this uh, lead of water, hooked it, and came across it. And got in safely, right? But uh, you know, a lightkeeper was on watch. Uh, you know, that's, yeah. it proved that a that a a lightkeeper was it was valuable that day. But that's my my uh, my seal story, anyhow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you probably saved some lives that day. And you use that phrase a few times in the book. A lightkeeper was on watch, and I, I want to get back to that eventually. But yeah, sure. uh, you definitely made made a point there. So there's a, a great story in the book that I really like. The story about the veteran uh, keeper Jack Roberts. I know a Jack Roberts, but this is a different Jack Roberts. Uh, he was uh, in his 80s uh, when you tell the story about him. He went into the hospital after a fall. So uh, what happened? Uh, maybe you could tell a little background of that. What happened when you visited him in the hospital? Yeah, Jack Roberts. Uh, like I said, I went there in '84. Mr. Roberts, he retired in the '50s, I believe, or '60s. He was well up there. And Roberts's and Sharps's was the families that sort of looked after that light house. I was a porter. I was I was an outsider, right? But uh, Jack Roberts was a well-respected man there in, in the community, like even for, I think, 40-odd years, him and his wife. He never had any kids, but the light house was his baby. When I first went there, he used to come up and drive around the parking lot a couple times a day, look out over the ocean. And he had his binoculars and just leave and come again. And uh, I asked a couple of local men, like, he don't drop in to say hello or visit, right? He was too attached. Like, when he retired, he couldn't go back and visit the light access. It was too painful for him. Um, but I hear some great stories of him rescuing seal hunters. And, like, you know, he was a dedicated old, uh, old salty uh, dog, right? So I never, ever spoke to him. I seen him many, many times, and uh, he just wouldn't come up and speak to me. And fast forward to 1986 or 87, I think it was, I was in Gander Hospital having a, a operation. I had trouble with my nose, sinuses. I broke my nose playing hockey, actually. Uh-huh. So I was in to get my nose, the sinuses cleaned up. I was in there for a week because I had some complications. And on the end of my stay, uh, the nurses told me that Lightkeeper Jack Roberts was admitted in the middle of the night. He had fallen and broken his hip. Lived by himself. His, his wife had passed away, and he was—he had to crawl 
I don't know where, a long distance in the house. Took him a long time. I think he used to faint, pass out. He was in a lot of pain. And he finally got to a phone, phone the Hamlets, and they, they uh, took him into Gander Hospital, uh, which is an hour drive from Twangate or more. And uh, he was in bad shape, but they, uh, I think they done hip surgery at, with him. So he was a couple couple rooms down from me, right? I was thinking, gosh, I, I like to go down and talk to him, but uh, I, I think I went down in his room one one night. He was sleeping, but he was in a lot of pain, discomfort. And I went back to my room, and he had no family around. And uh, the night before I got discharged, midnight, I heard this commotion out in, down down a couple rooms down from me. And, you know, I knew it was coming from uh, Mr. Roberts's uh, room. So I waited for a bit and then went, walked out to the nursing station because I was feeling healthy now. I was just killing time. And the nurses all knew I was a light keeper that, and uh, old Mr. Roberts was a light keeper. And I just asked uh, what was happening, what the, what the commotion was. And they said, uh, Mr. Roberts is dying. His vital signs are, are way out of whack and it didn't look good. And uh, I asked the nurse, I said, can I go in and uh, speak to him? And he said, sure, right? He's there by himself, midnight. So I went into his room. He was asleep and, uh, you know, in discomfort. And I guess he was, he was soon checking his, 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 uh, his self through the pearly gates. I don't know. But for some reason, I just started thinking, uh, you know, he, he lived and breathed that blind point blood. So I started talking to him. Say, Jack, the, the fog is rolling in. Back then, you had to manually turn on the fog horn and everything would manual for years that he was a late keeper. So I just started talking, uh, you know, you got to get up, you got to go down and turn on the fog or uh, the fog is rolling in. And then I started talking other things about the light need to be shined. And, and I've probably done it for a half an hour, just light keeper to light keeper uh, interaction. And I get a moan or a groan at him. And uh, when I was leaving, I had a little, I used to keep a picture in my wallet. A little two by three picture of Lon Point, a really nice uh, picture of the sunset. And I laid it on his desk there next to his bed and went back to my room, went to sleep. And next morning I woke up, I was getting discharged. And the nurse came into me before she left for her eight o'clock shift go, to go home. And <laughs> she said to me, Barry, I don't know what you said to Mr. Roberts uh, last night, but his vital signs are all back. He's doing really good and uh, he's going to make it. And uh, I got discharged. I never did see him. And he, he recovered from his, uh, his hip surgery and went into a long-term room at the hospital in Twillingate with a view of the ocean, which is what he uh, always requested, and lived another several years. But I don't know if it was anything <laughs> I had to do, but uh, I, I give it a shot. I, I, <laughs> I spoke some old-fashioned light keeper uh, lingo to him. And, uh, I think deep down, he might have responsive, responded. It sure sounds like it. Again, uh, you may have saved another life there. Uh, a light keeper was on watch once again. Yeah. Uh, that is such a great story. Uh, I can uh, completely understand how, how you saying that stuff would have meant so much to him. You can order Barry Porter's book, Adventures of a Light Keeper, directly from the publisher, Flanker Press, at flankerpress.com. You can also order it from Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and other online booksellers. 
Barry also tells us that if you contact him on Facebook, you can get a signed copy directly from him. Just get on Facebook and do a search for Barry Porter Author. There are lots of fascinating stories still to come in parts two and three of the interview with Barry over the next two weeks on this podcast. Here's a little bit more about Long Point Lighthouse, where Barry spent much of his career. It's in the community of Crowhead on the island of Twillinggate, which is accessible by road from the mainland. It's one of 23 light stations in Newfoundland that remains staffed, and there are tours available to the public. Long Point is one of the iconic lighthouses of Atlantic Canada, and from the pictures I've seen, it looks like they've done an excellent job with the exhibits there. I'm hoping to take a trip up that way next year if things go right. If you listen to this podcast with Apple Podcasts, please be sure to rate and review us. And be sure to check out the U.S. Lighthouse Society's website at uslhs.org to learn more about tours, preservation grants, and all the other things the Society offers. Remember that donations and memberships support this podcast. I'll also add that you can listen to all of the episodes of this podcast, which goes back four years, on the news blog at news, that's N-E-W-S, news.uslhs.org. So with that, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine